Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing great today. How are you doing? Oh, well, I'm really excited. Today is the day that we're launching our Patreon campaign. How cool is that? That is super cool. I'm excited for folks to uh, get a chance to see the platform. And, and I know that you have done some amazing work, and especially the uh, the intro video. I can't wait for folks to see. Yeah, the intro video doing that was pretty fun. So anyhow, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what Patreon is and why we're launching this campaign and uh, some of the ideas that uh, we have coming towards you in 2018. So um, so I know we've started uh, asking for donations about a year ago and people have really come out of the woodwork and been very supportive of us and we've been super appreciative of that. Uh, more recently, I came across this thing called Patreon, which is really all about getting uh, people who are fans of creators to be patrons of the creators, so basically support the creators so that the creators can focus on creating amazing content. And uh, as we're looking forward to 2018, we have so many great ideas. And one of those ideas is the city versus city competition. So uh, we did a test, and the test was really successful. I'm sure that some of you out there have seen it. Uh, but what we're what we're discussing now is actually growing it into a league where we have a handful of cities competing throughout the course of two months and eventually crowning a winner city, the the city of Haynesville. So whoever wins becomes the city of Haynesville. So anyhow, mm -hmm. we realize as we're growing and we're wanting to do more, the more support that we have from our fans, the more that we'll be able to do. So that's really why we're launching this Patreon campaign. Uh, so anyhow, let's shift to uh, our episode for the day. So we are going to be talking to Joey Hudaklin again. Uh, he and Richie Smits did a no-throw, no-drop, one-catch routine. So that's the first thing we asked him about. And before we go into that, I just wanted to say a special thank you to Stephen Paul Stodder, who was actually there on site and filmed it and allowed us to post it up on our YouTube page. So thanks, Stephen. So let's listen to Joey. I actually wanted to ask you, Joey, about the, the routine that you did with Richie that has no-throw, no-drop, one-catch. Like... What inspired you to do that? Well, which you, you posted that, and I'd never seen the video before you did. Well, that had been something that everyone had talked about for, you know, a couple of years before that, because, you know, people's skills had, had gotten to the point where it could, it could be done. So with Richie and I, because we had done that routine with the twirling, the double disc twirling, and, and, our, and I had just with Corey Basso uh, and Evan David, they had started incorporating the, the counter airbrush with this, what we call the psycho bash, um, which was a tribute to Corey uh, more than anything else. I had incorporated that and I wasn't very good at it, but I could add enough spin consistently to use it uh, as a way to, to continue my counter. Uh, combinations. Richie and I just said, well, let's, let's just do it. It was uh, Sonoma State and the wind at Katati uh, at Sonoma State University was just spectacular. More than any other big grass field that I can remember, the wind there was like a, almost like a beach wind. So we, we figured we could go for it. And 
we incorporated uh, the airbrushing and, and as many disc skills that we could, uh, except for throw and catch. <laughs> we excluded the throw and the catch and did everything else. So we used the twirl to, to, to kill time. And um, it was just something that, we, that everyone thought of, wouldn't it be cool if... We just said, let's do it. And, and uh, you know, I relied on Richie to keep adding spin because he was just so good at airbrushing with counter and extended some co-ops that way. And it got dull, in, in my opinion, and, and halfway through. And, and I, made, I tried to, I changed the spin at one point, which was, mm-hmm. you know, risky because if you mess it up, it's over. So I changed the spin and added some spin and then uh, did a little combo with clock, added some more spin, turned it over to counter, gave it to Richie and let him do a benign. He, he turned it back over and benign it. That's where the spin stopped. And he, I believe he changed it back to counter and we finished the routine with uh, a twirl set into a catch. So, and everybody, you know, halfway through or let, or was like, they're doing it. They're doing it. And, and everybody got excited. And, and uh, Corey was the first one who came out because he, you know, he probably had that thought, like, I could keep this thing going forever. You know, so he was really fired up for us. And that was pretty, pretty cool. But more than anything, it was just an exercise in uh, repetition. You know, just adding spin, adding spin and, you know, getting through it. That's all it really was. It didn't feel so great. But it was just something that we, for posterity. Just sort of to prove that you could. Yeah, you could say that. You were on this team called the Team Bud Light, as I understand it, with Chipper Bro and Crazy John. So I'm just curious how that, how all that came about. How did you meet those guys and how did you form the team? I guess uh, after the uh, Rose Bowl in 79, I was in Venice, living in Venice, um, I was really just living in my van. Uh, that's that was my life, basically, moving about. For me to do that, I had a comfortable situation doing that, and so I was in, in Venice, and it was, you know, it was getting to be winter time, and there wasn't the scene wasn't quite the same at that point for some reason, and um, there's a little blank in my mind there somewhere, but I was sort of feeling a little bit without the connections that I wanted and I'd made a couple trips up to Santa Barbara on weekends somewhere in that area maybe in the fall of 79 and I decided and up there there was a really 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 strong scene there was Danny Sullivan and Jeff Soto and John Kirkland and uh, Cynthia Birch and Teresa Gannon wasn't really active anymore but she was still around and Steve Reeks, Leaker, as most of the people know him, um, was prominent. Uh, gosh, who else? Well, uh, Chipper and uh, and Jay Hinkle. And those guys were younger, not even 20 years old yet, really. And so I saw Chipper, and we, you know, he's such a nice guy and sweet character and honest, uh, you know, really outgoing, outpouring of Everybody connects with Chipper, really, and and so did I. I liked obviously what he the potential that he had. So I I called him up and I said, Hey, uh, you know, Chipper, it's Joey. Um, how you doing? Um, 
listen, I, I'm going to drive up to uh, Santa Barbara next weekend, and I'm thinking about just staying. You know, like, will you play Frisbee with me if I do? And he's like, hell yeah, man. You know, that's great. Come on up. And I could just live in my van. So it was like easy. You know, life was really easy at that, at that time. Um, so I drove up and I stayed. That was it. And after a while, I was like, so Chip, you know, come out to play, come out to play. And it was a little hard to get him. So I, cause he was, ha- he was into skateboarding and surfing and, you know, girls and probably still in high school. I don't know. I, uh, I said, so Chip, you know, I'd like you to be my partner, you know, like tournaments, let's play, you know, and he goes, really, you know, oh, I don't know, man, you know, I'm like, listen, we'll win, you'll be the world champion, how about that, and he's like, whoa, so he he was like, hmm, he's like, yeah, okay, (laughs) and so I, I said, so listen, I'm just, I'm gonna help you refine your game, I'm gonna show you some things and ways to shape your body because she's got this great freestyle body and and he just said okay you know a little bit of work went a long way with him and before long the next later that year we won that Santa Barbara Open that same tournament in the spring after a long winter of working hard on a routine what year was that Joey 1980 so between the summer I mean the winter of 79 into the uh, you know, January 1980 is when I moved there. So I guess 1980, later that year, was the Santa Barbara Open. Must have been 81. God, it's hard to, it's hard to put that together in my mind. But 80, I moved there. We started playing. It must have been 81 uh, winter that we were working really hard. And so we won that big tournament, and that was great. And Chip's mom was there, and, you know, she was like, well, all excited and for him and it was a real thrill so we kept on going and some tournaments and i don't know it sort of started to become a little bit of a blur at that point but uh at some point um crazy john came to california and i think he was in in la but he you know basically stole chipper away from me and with uh you know the offer of uh touring and making money and I was a little bit resentful, but um, I could have my pick of people to play with. So it, it was okay, you know. And So when it started, um, was it just Crazy John and Chipper touring? Well, they had already, the Bud Light team had already been around for uh, two years or so with um, Hal Kurz and, um, forgive me, I can't remember the, the third partner's name right now, um, Crazy could fill in the blank. They uh, those guys dropped out because of probably family and you know real life kind of things, and Crazy came in search of a new partner and he picked Chip. They started doing they picked up and continued on that, and I picked up uh, Pete Rosing and 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 Larry Imperiali as my new partners. And then after uh, a year or so. You know, the Bud Light team was getting, doing cooler and cooler gigs. Uh, Chipper probably helped that somewhat because of his dynamics and uh, technical ability and, and charisma. So Chipper, I believe, said to Craze, um, hey, why don't we get the third player? Let's get Joey. 
you know, that way we could have, you know, a better routine and we could probably win some tournaments, the world championship, hint, hint, you know, wouldn't that look good on the t-shirt and the logo and to the corporate people. And so that was a pitch that Crazy presented to uh, AB and Heiser Bush and they bought it. And it was easy because there was a big budget for the team. So they brought me in. My first gig <laughs> was the infamous Fountain of Bush in Kansas City. Uh, this is a crazy story that I don't know if I want to really get into all the details, but I, I didn't make it to, I couldn't play in the finals because I, have a, I got sick. Let's put it that way. I went on to, to the next weekend to represent the team in the world championships in, in FDA championships in Minneapolis. And I guess this might've been 85. So we're sort of jumping ahead, but, um, crazy, crazy chip had a, a gig, uh, somewhere. And they sent me to Minneapolis to represent the team. I picked up Skippy as a free agent and John Houck as a free agent. And we did a routine, put it together on the fly and ended up winning the threesomes that year. And that was a surprise, but we pulled it off. You know, so so that basically my first two gigs were, were with the Bud Light team. You know, after that, it was just a whirlwind, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah, it sounds like you guys had an, an array of amazing experiences. Didn't you guys open up for Stevie Ray Vaughan at one point? Yeah, baby. Tell us about um, that. Yeah, well, the Bud Light team um, would do gigs on stage for rock bands during uh, spring break in Padre Island, Texas. We opened for Jan and Dean, where we later went to China with Starship, Stevie Ray Vaughan. We opened for twice different places. Um, and the one was in Padre Island. Yeah, that was quite a scene. Um, it was an outdoor show with about maybe 50 to 75,000 people on the beach we had a stage set up facing the beach and Thunderbirds were there. The fabulous Thunderbirds, Jimmy Vaughn, Stevie's brother. Stevie was the final act. So I think the Thunderbirds went out, then uh, the Bud Light promotion before Stevie. So we were the Bud Light promotion. Crazy got on the mic, got them all fired up, and we did the Bud Light chant, give me a light, Bud Light, give me a light, Bud Light. And we were up there, the three of us, and with all the equipment on stage and just barely enough room to uh, execute our routines. Played the Frankenstein, Edgar Winters Frankenstein. And, and the, the crowd loved that. And we started playing. Uh, there was some speed flow in the beginning and we had a couple drops right in the beginning and and uh, we, they started booing us. <laughs> and I remember a bottle of beer came flying, whizzing by my, my head on stage i'm like whoa like they threw beer beer bottles at us you know and because we dropped a couple you know we couldn't mess this routine up right so we pulled it together and there's a video out there and it's, it's pretty good considering the conditions and so we finished up and and we got the crowd on our side crazy introduced Stevie Ray Vaughan and who was standing in the wings watching us play and it was quite a thrill yeah a good highlight That's pretty cool. So you mentioned China. So I have heard whether this is a myth or legend or not, but you guys had an incident in Tiananmen Square. 
Yeah, well, we were doing shows in Shanghai Stadium, a series of them, uh, maybe six shows in a row. And the Chinese audience was not receptive to the music. Uh, they didn't recognize it, nor did the offic Chinese officials. They didn't know Jan and Dean. They didn't know what they were getting. They, there's a lot of things that I could add into this. But one, the main thing was that the audience would not respond to the music. And after we, they loved the Frisbee show that we did in, in between interval between sets, musical sets, she loves it because we were just athletes. They related to that, but the music was foreign. So they didn't know what to do with it. Rock and roll, surf rock. We uh, spent the time after our gig going out into the audience and trying to in, um, inspire them or incite them to dance really simply just, Hey, this is American rock and roll. This is what you do. Let's dance. Nobody would, we were like, Hmm, like shaking, scratching our heads going, you know, hmm, what do we do? So crazy got one guy to say, yeah, 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 I will do it. And he crazy brought him out of the audience onto the stage uh, he uh, actually participated in playing in the music. He played he played drums uh, with the band while they were playing. And uh, afterwards, he was um, arrested and beaten and taken to jail and never to be heard from again, uh, as far as we knew. And he w we found out that was a, a prominent person in the democratic movement that existed in the university. That's why perhaps he had the, the nerve to do what he did and he paid the price. And within a week or so, we started getting reports that there were demonstrations in Tiananmen Square. And by the time we left the country a week, two weeks later, it was in the Western press. And when we arrived in Hong Kong, they wanted to know what happened, and there were reports that members, that this demonstration was sparked by members of the Jan and Dean entourage, and that was us. You know, two years later, that became the massacre. And of course, when we arrived in, in Hong Kong, they, the press wanted to know what happened. We were instructed, because this was a cultural exchange between the United States and China, uh, us going over there, and they send their uh, athletes to to showcase their skills here, uh, acrobats and things like that. So we were asked to not disclose any salacious details that of what might have caused this to happen. And the, the only thing that was said was we nothing happened that we haven't seen at any rock concert in, in the United States. You know, someone got arrested. After that, I don't know. It's out of our heads. You know, so but that's what happened. That's really what happened. All we can say is wow. So, yeah, it was really really crazy. I, I don't want to leave the Bud Light experience yet. So um, obviously the Bud Light uh, team had tons of choreography and the music was certainly incorporated into that routine. So who was, who was the lead in that experience of putting together that routine and choreographing it? And maybe you could give a little, little insight into that. Well, Crazy and I um, were doing the team as a pair for um, a period of time. Um, Chipper took a leave because uh, of relationship obligations and 
crazy and I so crazy and I had a routine that we developed and for pairs. You know, I had some ideas that I brought from Chipper and I's routine. We hadn't really worked on our threesome routine much at that point. Shortly after I came in, Chipper kind of left. So Crazy and I were left to our own devices, and we developed a routine, and I brought in some of the elements of Chipper and my, my routine, and Crazy, of course, had uh, some ideas. Crazy was very, very easy for me to work with. His game was growing exponentially at that point, uh, playing with Chip, and his desire to really excel in competition. We put together a nice routine, and um, I guess, you know, I don't know if I had the bigger influence on it or not, probably. I mean, I, I liked chore- choreographing at, at that point. I was, it was good. I, I, for me, it was fun. I didn't really like working over and over and over again, but to make routines, but, but I liked the, uh, putting, making, uh, taking ideas and, and ha- seeing them work, uh, the end result. So it was worth the effort. And we, we, we tried to showcase Crazy's best skills. And I could, you know, I, my skills were so varied that I could mix with almost anybody, really. So when Chipper came back to the team some months later, uh, we incorporated him into basically what Crazy and I had been doing, which had been incorporated from what Chipper and I had been doing before that. So it all sort of came, uh, it was a mix, mishmash of stuff that, that we had been doing and we tried to uh, crowd pleasing and, and technically, uh, you know, good enough to win, win tournaments as well. So one of the, the competitive moments that you had when you were playing with that team was that, that, that mythical tipping combination that everyone says is the best tipping combo <laughs> ever. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, man. Um, you know, I, I gotta say, you know, it, that really is the greatest thing I've ever done with a frisbee. I mean, there's some of the things on the Joey files that are different and that I've never really seen myself do, but in a different way. Because you know, tipping is my forte. It really is. It was from the beginning. It always, it's my fallback, my default thing that I can always rely on, and no matter what the conditions, because it's just a straight up and down thing the wind doesn't affect it too much. Um, and so that was my point in the routine to try to do my best tipping combo, showcase that part of my game. You know, Chipper's got that crazy counter lefty throw. And, and I don't know if anybody really throws more spin than that with counter. He unleashed that thing at me and I was fired up. I had a great round that day. I, you know, I was in the zone and, as I mentioned earlier, my concept of when I start a combination is think of the, the first two moves, maybe three. And then after that, it's what can I do, the best thing I can do next without interrupting the flow with a the. So I had two moves planned. One was a double spinning tip, or it might have been a, a one and a half tip, I think, to start under the leg into a double spin under the leg. That was my first two moves. So those worked out perfectly, and then it was just on. Yes, it was on, and that was the most amazing tipping combo that I've ever seen, that's for sure. He did double spins, both directions, behind the back tip, 
tipping with both hands, tipped under both legs with both hands on each side. I mean, it's it doesn't get any better than that. It was freaking amazing. So I'm glad I'm glad that that is on video, and we'll have it on the Frisbee Guru page for folks to take a look at. I'm wondering, have you ever had moments where you're jamming, where you just kind of felt like it was on, and and you know, you just could do whatever? Uh, definitely, I've had several of those moments. I'll tell you one particular one that was it's my favorite. It was in the Worlds at 2014 in Medellin. It was the semifinals, and I was playing with Lori and Mixed, and uh, we were doing our routine, and I was feeling like I was playing really well. Things were feeling good, and um, she threw me counter. And I did some moves and then I set it up in the air and I did a double crow counter. And like double crow for me is kind of weak. Counter for me, especially then, was weak. And I just like didn't even think about it. I threw it up there, spun around, bam, caught it. I didn't celebrate. I didn't even think about it. I'm just like, okay, yep, it's on. So then we finished the routine and we're doing the, she's doing the last set to my catch. And I think, I can do anything. I'm going to throw in a spin here. I spin around and she sets it short. <laughs> and I'm coming out and I see it short and I think, I'm just going to catch the backside of that. That'll give me that extra second that I need. And sure enough, the disc goes through my hand and I catch the end of it right before it hits the ground and then fall over and point because it was, it was impossible. I shouldn't have been able to catch that. But man, I was in the moment. And when you're in the moment, stuff happens. It's really cool. Oh, that's awesome. I, I love that when those experiences happen like that, especially in competition, not just jamming, but in competition, you're on moment. Yeah. There's something about being on where you can't, like you're doing your routine. So you can't stop. If you mess it up, you can't stop and you can't really evaluate. You're forced to be in the moment. So yeah, it's also one of those things where you don't really know it when you're in it. So it's kind of hard to like say, oh, I'm on just kind of can be a reflective moment where you reflect back and go, oh, I was on and I didn't mm -hmm. know it. You just kind of doing it. So I just want to mention again, our Patreon platform that we're launching today. And one of the things that's really fun is go check out Jake's video. So I encourage all of you to go to the Patreon page just to see the video if anything else. So, um, and on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week, Randy. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Hainesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live streaming freestyle 